You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. One guest on this podcast, but uh, man, I really, really enjoyed this conversation. One of my favorite colleagues from Sports Illustrated, Michael McCann, is a legal analyst and senior sports legal reporter at Sportico. He is a professor of law at the University of New Hampshire's Franklin Pierce School of Law, where he's also the director of the Sports and Entertainment Law Institute. Um, there is so much um, going on in terms of the intersection between sports and legal and nobody better in my opinion in the United States in terms of writing this stuff on a media basis uh, than Michael McCann who just does a great job of explaining these complex issues in layperson terms so we talk about Jack Del Rio got really really into that the his team imposing a fine on what he had to say and the legal issues surrounding when a team does it versus the league um, whether he could appeal how this sort of the uh, intersects uh, other sports organizations what could happen if uh let's say the athletic tried to find me for something i said um a lot of interesting stuff there we got into the pga tour and liv golf in terms of uh each side perhaps thinking about suing on antitrust and contract claims talked about the deshaun watson case jenny rentis's amazing reporting in the new york times and where that's now stands and um how the browns really have no recourse to to avoid that trade and, and what could come next. Finish up with uh, Johnson versus the NCAA, a massive case before the Third Circuit that could really, really impact college athletics. Um, talked about um, the uh, states that have enacted legislation banning transgender students from participating in sports teams at public high schools and and where that may be going. And then we finish up with um, the women's uh, NCAA basketball tournament and what recourse some of these athletes might have in that uh, that tournament is woefully um, uh, sort of underserved in terms of how much money is going for a from a media outlet for that tournament. So Michael McCann coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. Let me put out here. You guys have been awesome in terms of uh, uh, providing feedback um, uh, where you review this podcast. Please continue to do that. Leave us a five-star review and a nice note. That's how this podcast continues. And uh, thank you so much for all the support on this. This is an independent podcast that's separate from The Athletic, and uh, and I really appreciate it. So coming up, Michael McCann on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, we're joined by Michael McCann, a legal analyst and senior sports legal reporter at Sportico. He is a professor of law at the University of New Hampshire, New Hampshire's Franklin Pierce School of Law, where he is also the director of the Sports and Entertainment Law Institute, he was a, a longtime colleague of mine at uh, Sports Illustrated. Um, 
I will say this. I, I haven't told Mike exactly what I'm going to say, but uh, it, it was such an absolute honor to work with the guy. He's so bright, smart. I think he's far and away the best person in terms of working today in the media space on explaining and, and analyzing legal issues in sports. Way back in the day at SI, we used to have a guy, Lester Munson, who was really uh, famous for that a little bit before my time, but I feel like he was sort of the forerunner. And, and Michael McCann, to me, is that guy like in a, in a 3.0 world and the times I worked with them and trust me I brought very little to the table when those times existed it was just great to to work with this dude and to watch how his mind worked and with that Michael McCann probably the nicest thing I've said to anybody in an intro in a while welcome to the sports media podcast Richard thank you and and I hope your listeners know that it was an honor to collaborate with you on so many stories it was it was really incredible the work we did together and I miss it because the, the, there were some fun times we had unpacking all sorts of things. And, and thank you for the kind words. And I'm glad to be on your show. Yeah, that's ridiculously too generous. And let me just say, to, to very be honest with Mike, there were so many reporters at Sports Illustrated when we worked there who are so far more accomplished than me when it comes to reporting, particularly on legal stuff. So, you know, occasionally when my world intersected with Mike on on something, uh, I was really a novice and he was, he was beyond helpful. So, you know, trust me, there are things that I'm strong at, like being an idiot. And this was not necessarily, uh, <laughs> one of them. So I was really, I was really happy when Michael McCann was around. All right, Mike, we've got a number of things to talk about, but I want to go broad here to start with, cause this is like interesting to me. And I just wonder how you see it. Um, in the, in the short time that I've known you, it seems like the intersection of legal and sports has increased multifold um it's not to say that these issues didn't exist before but if i don't know if we're in a more litigious time or more criminal time maybe that's the wrong way to say it but it just seems or, or certainly economics have played into this with colleges and stuff but my interpretation of this is that what you are an expert in has grown exponentially or the content of it has grown exponentially is that in from your perspective is that an accurate assessment yeah, the, the industry, the, the sports legal industry has grown dramatically in the last two decades. And why that's the case, I think there are a number of reasons. One is just the sports business has grown. So as a result, there are more folks involved, more companies involved, more disputes over contracts. I also think part of it is the role of sort of athlete empowerment, where athletes can can use social media to communicate viewpoints that they couldn't before. There used to be a gatekeeper with the agent, with the team sort of controlling the message. That's still there to some extent, but it's also faded a bit where athletes have the, the direct ability to, to talk and give viewpoints that in some cases may generate controversy. Another reason I suspect is that it is more litigious, but also that there are more law firms with sports practices. And there, it's a growing field. And I tell my students this, that there are more firms with sports practices than ever before. And they do hire. They're hard jobs to get, no doubt. But part of it is also that the, that the sort of field has grown. So there are more folks that are practicing in this area of law. So there's, there's more disputes. But yeah, it, it has grown exponentially and and I don't see it slowing down. As you reference the college sports industry really becoming more professionalized, obviously coaches have always made a lot of money. Now athletes are getting some benefits on that front. That will create new work as well. Uh, one more sort of big picture, Mike, and then we'll get into some specifics. Um, 
How do you distinguish between your legal read on something versus how you might feel about that issue morally? And is it a challenge to, I don't know, push down your own personal beliefs on something to render what you think is the legal analysis of it? Yeah, I really try to be as detached as possible. And I, I think I'm, I've had some success with that because when I'm teaching a class, I try to be neutral. And I think a, a, a good professor of law really tries to explain the law in a way that doesn't direct the students to feel like they have to adopt a certain viewpoint in order to do well in the course. So that kind of lens, I think, has helped me writing about sports legal issues where I really do try to be neutral. And even when I don't agree with one side, I, I might firmly disagree, but I try not to show it in my writing and I really try to think about what each side would argue, give each side their best case and let the reader decide what's more persuasive. All right, let's get into some specifics uh, that are currently in the news. Um, how do you look at the fine that was imposed by the Washington commanders to Jack Del Rio from a sports law vantage point? And I, I read from you, so we'll just be clear and you'll obviously explain it. The team is imposing the fine as opposed to the league. And that difference would would have a lot to do with how what what the recourse Del Rio might have or might not have. Can you explain one, just sort of how you see it from the sports law vantage point, and two, the difference in that the fine is from the team as opposed to the NFL? Yeah, there's several layers to this. And let's take the second part first, the fact that it was the team rather than the league. So when a league finds an executive or a coach, that's arguably problematic because the executive or coach doesn't work for the league. And he or she is not part of a union that's in a CBA with the league like a player is. So it's a peculiar thing where a league can actually punish someone who doesn't work for the league and isn't in a labor agreement with the league. And that's something that I've written about. Uh, Daryl Morey has uh, been fined several times, so I've written about that in that context where how does the NBA justify finding someone that doesn't actually work for the NBA and isn't an owner either, right? He's not an owner. So there's that piece to it. So when a team finds a coach, it, it, it is unusual, not because the coach doesn't work for the team because the coach does, but the odd part is that we haven't seen this happen where a coach is fined. There are other penalties that are brought up with, with a coach. So a coach could be suspended, right? A coach could be warned. A coach could be put on what's called administrative leave where you're still paid while the employer investigates. And usually there's something called progressive discipline where you don't jump to a suspension. There's usually a warning first. But to find a coach, to dock the coach pay, I, I talked to Tom Mars, who has litigated on behalf of coaches, both in the NFL and college. He said he's never seen a clause in a contract discussing that. So when we talk about Jack Del Rio, there's should he be punished for what he said? There's that piece. But then there's the is this the right vehicle for punishing him? Is this is a fine which maybe isn't contemplated by his contract appropriate? And then secondly, with Del Rio, there is the. He has some ability. Does the contract say he can't give a political opinion? So the contract does 
in all likelihood, we haven't seen his contract. So we're talking about coaches contracts in general. The contract will contain some sort of morals clause saying, in effect, if the coach says something that damages the team's brand, the team can, can punish the coach. So arguably the, the commanders can say, well, he gave a political opinion that was very controversial, that was hurtful, and he partially apologized for it. So it suggests that he acknowledged some wrongdoing in what he said. So maybe the team can say that gives them grounds, but it, we start to get into a tricky area, right? Because if it's okay to punish a coach for giving what we might call a very conservative viewpoint, would a coach be punished for giving a very liberal viewpoint that's also controversial? Uh, does there have to be consistency? Does this, does this concern other coaches when they give viewpoints, not only about the viewpoints, but then the vehicle of a fine? So those are, those are some thoughts on that. That's interesting. Um, this would just be my analysis of it. I think had Del Rio been a member of a different organization and said that, and he's not referring to the city in particular that he's in, I wonder how that team would have reacted. They still may have fined. They still might not have. Maybe the dollar figure is different. So that's just an aside by me. But, Mike, if you if you sort of take this a little bit further, because this would, I think, have impact everybody in sports. It would impact uh, both of us who work for media organizations. Is that the kind of clause that an, an organization will try to use in terms of fines or – suspensions because like the reality is like we all have freedom of speech but we don't have freedom of consequences from that speech if you work for a private employer right so is that if i I don't try to make this sort of like an example so if um if nikola Jokic said the exact same thing that Jack Del Rio did. He's obviously not going to, but but let's sort of play it out for a little bit. Does it have to do with how the Denver Nuggets analyze whatever is in his contract regarding some kind of clause that would have detrimental impact to the organization? And so, and again, I'm not a lawyer, but if I'm reading this right, isn't then so much of this ultimately the arbitrary judgment of a management group to determine whether this violation has happened? Yeah, it's a great point. You, you nailed it. So as you said, freedom of speech, the First Amendment only protects us from the government taking action against us. It doesn't protect us from an employer, particularly a private employer, from taking action against us for speech. And in this context, like you said, it really depends on whether the contract permits a punishment for what the employee said. And I also agree with you that management gets a ton of discretion here and maybe too much discretion, right? I mean, we, 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 Sage Steele's lawsuit against ESPN where, right? So is ESPN being, she argues ESPN is being inconsistent in how it enforces its policy against detrimental speech. Now, whether that's true or not could be debated, but this is a topic that I think we're, we're seeing outside of coaching into sports media and other contexts about does an employer, does management have to be consistent in policing speech that has political ramifications? I don't know. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it does what it wants, right? The remedy is always go get another job. That's, that's sometimes the defense that's used, that if somebody doesn't like the sort of political philosophy of an employer, they can, they can seek employment elsewhere. But I agree with you that Del Rio being in Washington 
has to be an important factor here, that if it had been any other team, it still would be controversial, but it's uniquely controversial given where the insurrection was. You brought it up, uh, so just let's just quickly do it. Um, what do you think, from what you've read of the Sage Steele um, lawsuit, and again, uh, I'm going to try to do this in my best layperson terms, from what I understand that, that Connecticut is an interesting state, right, in that it, it provides a little bit of different um, protection or rules for employees versus, let's say, if this um, suit was filed in, I'm making this up, New York or Nebraska. Can you can you explain why she may have a better chance of winning this because of the state she filed in? Yeah, we we wrote about this before with Jamil Hill. I mean, we, we, we've, we've done some uh, writing on this back back in the day uh, when we were when we were at SI. So you're, you're exactly right, Richard. Connecticut's law is different in that there's a statute which explicitly extends First Amendment protections to employees of private companies in a way that other states do not. Now, there's an asterisk to this. The asterisk is that that's true, but if the employee's conduct is considered detrimental, I can't think of the exact language of the state statute, the employer can still punish the person. So there's an, there's an out to this that ESPN can rely on, but it is a law that makes Sage Steele's case more, more viable uh, than it would be in other states. And for her, she has argued that she was treated differently. Now, it's, it's not clear that she was actually punished. I think that's one of the interesting parts about this. She wasn't fined. Yeah. Well, they're, they're, I guess they'll claim or their claims are that she's still on the air. She's still being paid. Right. So where is the I guess if you're their counsel, you're arguing, well, there's no punishment here. Like, where is the punishment? And I guess. And again, I, maybe I'm guessing here. She would argue, well, the punishment is in the, the optics or the, the public opinion like kind of thing. Yeah, she had to apologize. I think that she didn't get the same assignments. Also right, that right. her colleagues treated her poorly. Uh, it was embarrassing. So so she would argue, even if there's not a formal sanction, she felt harmed by the manner in which she was treated. Understood. All right. That's I assume that's one you're going to be following and we'll write about when the adjudication yep, happens. Is that something that can be yeah. appealed either way? If yeah. one side loses? Yeah, this could be okay. in court a while. Although, you know, so, this could also be settled tomorrow, right? Settled. Yeah, yeah. No, I understand that. All right, that's an interesting one to follow. One last one on this Del Rio thing, and then we'll get to LIV Golf, because I'm always sort of curious about this. If, if, if as an employee, Mike, of The Athletic, um, and let's just, I, I'd have to check my contract, but l- let's pretend there's some kind of clause, not pretend. The, the presumption is this, pro- I probably have a clause in there that says you can't do anything that disparages the brand. You can't do anything that brings bad favor to the brand or however that works. If I'm... If, if I am someone who is incredibly passionate, let's say, about gun control, and, and I had a child that, let's say, was horrific, like killed in a school shooting, like the, the most horrific thing you could think of, so this impacts me personally. And if I sort of say, like, this is a personal thing for me, my family was impacted, and I send out on my social media channels how I feel about this. Ultimately, that is a – one could determine that that is a political viewpoint if I say, like, you know, we, we need to do this. Here are the legislators who are not doing this. Can my company still, Mike, find me, fire me for that kind of violation, even though it is so intrinsically to who I, who I am as a human being? And I could prove it's intrinsically who I am as a human being. 
Yeah. So I think one is that if the athletic did that, the, the harm they would suffer by doing so, the public harm that people would say, how could you do that? Right. Would be pretty substantial. So the brand, I think the athletic would be reticent before doing that because of the sort of damage to its brand. If it punished an employee for that, for that type of activity, but setting that aside, part of the issue would also be when that horrible thing occurred, was it before or after the athletic hired you? If the athletic hired you, right, knowing that you're outspoken about this, you have a better argument that they sort of knew that going in than later on. Boy, that's interesting. <laughs> and I'm going to file that away because that's really interesting, I think, as, a, as an employee. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get to LIV golf. It's pretty interesting to me, um, and I am no golf fan, but I, I have to admit I've been like fascinated just by um, the the, and I don't say that flippantly. I mean like th- this is clear sports washing. You can't even argue against it. But there's a lot of legal issues here when it comes to what the players can or can't do. And I, I saw on Twitter that you mentioned this. So you offered multiple possibilities with the PGA Tour suspensions of these golfers regarding sort of the legal end. There's a possibility that the golfers can sue the PGA tour on antitrust and contract claims. You say this was interesting. LIV could sue the PGA tour on antitrust and tortious interference claims. Golfers in LIV can sue the PGA tour sort of as business partners. And then the PGA tour could sue LIV for torturous interference. I guess, you know, stealing their employees. So this is really, really fascinating and I guess I would ask you in a layperson's terms, like, does does either side have a a better path here if they were to head down a legal recourse? So I think the 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 tour has one advantage in that the golfers agreed to certain membership rules that clearly gave the tour discretion as to when it allows them to do other things, basically. And the the golfers can say, well, you know. They've given exemptions in the past, so why don't they do it here? But that's not necessarily the greatest legal argument because the tour apparently has discretion. So I would say the tour has that working in its favor. But the antitrust piece is interesting because if the tour is really functioning as a monopoly uh, over, over golf, essentially, then that allows the golfers and LIV to say, you are acting like a bully, essentially, right? You're preventing competition. You have this league that doesn't allow for competition, that tries to undermine potential competitors. In this context, there's so much money behind LIV that we have the wherewithal to overcome those institutional barriers that have maybe previously prevented rival competi- uh, competition that, that would be legitimate rival and, uh, you know, if it's an antitrust case, it will take a long time to play out and it will be a lot of money and it won't resolve the question of these particular golfers in any kind of quick period of time. It will be interesting to see if, in fact, the golfers, what, what a suspension actually means. Will they really be suspended? And I think I heard your, your comments earlier about, uh, you know, will the tour sort of look at this and say, well, we really 
we can't enforce these suspensions because we need them. And I think it's, I think part of this is just going to be sort of the practicality of it, where is there enough money? Uh, if the tour loses too many golfers, the tour is going to be harmed. So it can't, it can't be too aggressive either. All right. So let me ask you a question, which I think like the, the average golf fan would really, would really care about. Augusta National is its uh, the Masters is its own entity. It's separate from the PGA Tour, right? So I think they can make a decision as to whether these golfers, including some former champions, let's say, can play. If they determine, and I honestly have no idea what they're going to do, if they just determined and made a club rule or however organizational rule that LIV golf, if you're part of this LIV golf series, you are not allowed to play in the Masters. Do any of the golfers have legal recourse to sue Augusta National to try to get a spot there, no, understanding that Augusta National is a private enterprise? Yeah, the argument would be that Augusta National is conspiring with the tour and maybe other parties to exclude LIV golfers. That, it's, that would go back to the antitrust argument of this industry is trying to prevent an insurgent rival league, and they're acting... They're conspiring, uh, either either explicitly or they're acting with parallel conduct, mindful of each other. So that yeah, the golfer could say that this is all part of one conspiracy to exclude LIV. LIV could similarly join that kind of lawsuit to say you're all trying to prevent us from being. You, you don't want competition, and you're undermining competition. And they would argue the fan is hurt. Uh, that's the key with an antitrust case. The key is the fan. Is the fan deprived opportunities to watch other other tournaments that feature great players? And you could argue the market's better off when there are rival leagues that are that are real they're real competitors. We see that in other industries. Sports is unique where we don't really see that. There's one NFL, there's one major league baseball, but it doesn't mean golf can't have multiple top leagues. Would if you were um if you were an LIV golfer, uh that wanted to try to take on the PGA tour, would you be, would it benefit you more to try to file in the United States or abroad place like England? If the case probably goes back to the U S I'm guessing because of the membership of, of the, the tour membership is based in the U S. So even if you file abroad uh, through sort of civil procedure mechanisms, the case might migrate back to the United States. But from my understanding of laws in Europe, they're much more scrutinizing of restraints on competition. So there may be a tactical advantage to filing in Europe, although that doesn't mean the case will ultimately be heard there. Let's talk about Deshaun Watson. Uh, our old colleague Jenny Brentis has done some incredible reporting on Deshaun Watson and um, and the legal issues that exist there. Um, her reporting found that um, Watson booked appointments with at least 66 different women from the fall of 2019 to the spring of 2021. As you mentioned, uh, I might have seen this on your Twitter feed. Um, a few of these women have spoken publicly for the first time. They describe experiences, which I think this would be my interpretation, clearly undercut uh, Deshaun Watson's insistence that he was just there for massage therapy. So there's a lot of uh, sort of issues I want to ask you about this, Mike. But um, where the where things stand now, w what is next? Um here is is next at least in terms of Deshaun Watson the NFL will in theory continue to try to investigate and talk to these women to to 
glean more information about the as best as they can understand what has happened here? So I, I, what's next, at least based on what's been leaked, is an expectation that the NFL will punish Deshaun Watson this summer before training camp starts. I think their training camp starts on July 28th, that they'll impose some sort of suspension. But here's the issue. If the NFL thinks that they're just this is a much bigger scandal than they originally thought, and Jenny Brentis, as you said, her terrific reporting, I mean, think of like the, I mean, just to say for a second, like this, there's been so much energy devoted into this story. The fact that she found all these other people uh, after this really, Amazing. really just Im- impressive uh, and really great journalism. But the, the NFL, maybe the NFL knew about these people, but maybe not. And I don't know if they can act so quickly if there are all these other accusers, even if they don't go to court. Like you said, they're still leveling the same basic allegation that he acted inappropriately, if not unlawfully and that he wasn't in entirely interested in a massage service. And maybe that wasn't, that was really a secondary interest of him in recruiting them through Instagram. So it, maybe the NFL won't act this summer. I don't know, but I think the expectation is the NFL will punish him, but here's the problem for Watson and the Browns. The NFL can punish him again later on. If there are other accusers, if there's new information, uh, this isn't a Ray Rice situation where there was one horrible incident and a belief that the NFL didn't act on all of the information it knew. This would be m- numerous accusers who the list keeps growing. And also the number of lawsuits keeps growing. I mean, this is over a year, uh, 24. I mean, it, it, who knows how many others are going to come? Uh, this is really, I've never seen anything like this. It, it, think about it, 24 law. I mean, this isn't even a class action. These are 24 individual lawsuits. When have we ever seen this? Yep. Never. So again, I'm going to be a massive cynic here. And if the NFL tells me that they're concerned about these women and their well-beings, I don't believe it. I'm sorry. I just, I don't. Um, I'm not saying there aren't people in the NFL office who might, but the reality, at least from my perspective, is that the NFL cares about its image and it, it cares about what should, it cares about, do we want this person on the field in a historic franchise representing the league so to me mike i wonder on the legal terms when it comes to the investigation and and whatever goodell's power is like are they do they have the capacity to determine like this player being detrimental to the image of the league and then using that as part of their um jurisdiction on how long they would suspend him so again let me just i may i know they're not going to do this but but could there be an argument or legal argument to say if this person plays in our league we think it's going to have a significant detrimental impact on our league thus we are suspending this person for five years they're not going to do that but like i'm do you know what i'm sort of trying to get at like do they could they have the recourse to really set some kind of arbitrary number based on their um interpretation of here, th- this is significantly hurting our league, and thus the punishment has to be significant. Yeah. So the short answer is yes, and you're you're really alluding to this is a workplace policy. It's not the law, and the NFL doesn't have to rely on whether there's a lawsuit, whether there's a crime, whether there's a charge, whether there's a dismissal. The NFL is applying a workplace policy, and if it determines that 
the player, in this case, Watson, acted so egregiously and so detrimental to the league's interests that it warrants a multi-year suspension, they could reach that. There's no cap on how long a suspension can be. Now, that said, there would be a grievance process in all likelihood, though it would go back to Goodell. Uh, actually, let me rephrase. Goodell doesn't make the initial determination. It's someone neutral. It's uh, former Judge Robinson who will decide what is the appropriate punishment, though either uh, Watson or the league can appeal her ruling. And it goes to Goodell. So Goodell ultimately has final say, though, uh, as we know from Tom Brady and Deflategate, the player can petition a federal court to review what Goodell decides as the arbitrator. So maybe it does wind up in federal court. And the, the federal courts are pretty deferential to arbitrators. So the short answer is, yeah, uh, they could decide a multi-year suspension is appropriate. I think the counter argument would be there's no past practice of that. That, that right. seems really... The PA would become involved in this as a, as a course of, uh, even if they don't like Deshaun Watson, right, this principle is at play. Yeah, because they don't want a precedent set where there's a multi-year suspension for anything. A- and they will absolutely fight it. And, they, and I think the league is mindful of that, that they don't want to create a new precedent. But, but here, here's the thing. Could there be a year suspension? Yeah. I mean, he could he could lose a year. I I don't think that's beyond their own possibility given the unique situation that that's here. The um you mentioned this and this is this is very interesting on a legal thing. Do the Browns have any recourse to avoid the trade? And to me, my thought here, and again, this is just a layperson's take, I would think they're not on really great legal ground here because how how can you make the argument you didn't know that this stuff existed, or at least some of this stuff existed when you made the trade? Yeah, Richard, there were 22 lawsuits when they made the trade. So why is 24 lawsuits suddenly grounds to void a deal when they knew about 22? And also they, they patted themselves on the back saying they did all this due diligence on him. They held that press conference so basically saying, you know, right. we believe in him, right? And he's, he's, uh, we're, we're, we're comfortable with him being part of our organization kind of thing. Yeah, I don't, I don't see a viable argument they can try to get out of the trade. They, they shouldn't, they, they went out of their way to say they did background on him. And also, even setting that aside, if there are 22 lawsuits against someone and you trade for that person, you own that, right? Like, I don't understand. I don't see how you back us. Well, I didn't know about these other two, but why is 24 bad, but 22 is okay? It just doesn't, doesn't add 100%. up. 100%. Yeah. I mean, you're own the cynical nature of your trade, I, I would say. Um, how detrimental for Deshaun Watson was Rusty Hart and his lawyer making those comments on the radio station about uh, happy endings. He's sort of basically saying that like, I guess like, well, what's the big deal if this, uh, if, 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 if this happened, but you sort of get into this. Well, then he's, what he's really would be saying, right. Is that like Deshaun Watson wasn't really going there for a massage. He was going there for something else. Again, I, you know, I don't even know if it'd be admissible in any kind of court or hearing, but I don't know. That seemed to me to be a a lawyer maybe doing a little too much press and making a mistake for his client. Yeah, and Harden's a great lawyer. I mean, look, the guy has had a long, distinguished career. Everyone messes up, and, and I think that was a mess up. And it sort of implied that, okay, he's there for a massage that he pays for, and then after the massage ends, he also has some sort of sexual activity that he didn't pay for. I mean, it gets really right. a lot of if it's, it's a convoluted account that I think would strike many to say if he's going there, at least in part, 
to have some sort of sexual service, that's prostitution. That's a crime. And that's not an adequate def- that's not an effective defense against a civil claim of assault. So Yeah, not to mention I think he opens up the door for the women who seem very truthful about you know what I'm saying? He's his flippancy, I think, hurt hurts his larger case that this was all a professional that his client went there just for a professional uh medical athletic right. service. That's right. That's right. Because how could it be that he only went there for that and then as luck would have it Right. He also had these sexual, I mean, whether it's actual sex or short of sex. Correct. I mean, it just, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, I agree. Like, just logically, it, it, it doesn't. All right, let's, uh, as we start to close here, I want you to um, tell my audience, because I, I, it seems very clear that you consider this a pretty significant case. Um, Johnson versus the NCAA, which is before the Third Circuit, and why this is important. Yeah, the, the basic reason why this case is important is that it argues if the co- if the work study student who might have a scholarship that's at the game, taking your ticket, telling you where to sit, selling you popcorn, if that student gets paid minimum wage, then why doesn't the athlete? That's the basic question in this case. And the law is the Fair Labor Standards Act, which is not the kind of law that we've heard about with players unionizing and and signing contracts and CBAs, it merely provides minimum wage and overtime pay to qualified employees. And that's why I think this case, it's been kind of overlooked, which to me is interesting because the college sports media, as you know, Richard, is so like devoted, right? I mean, there's like there's NIL reporters, it seems like every day. So, yeah. And and on the Alston case, there's like, you know, three people writing about it every second. So I'm struck by sort of the, the lack of attention paid towards this case. And maybe because it isn't as sexy, it's we're talking about getting paid minimum wage, but that's a game changer. If college athletes are are owed minimum wage, not only the ones now, but the ones before that number gets pretty big. And it also would mean it sort of recalculates the economics of college sports. If they're, if they should be paid. So I think the case is significant. We'll see what the third circuit does. This argument hasn't worked in other circuits it's been tried in the Ninth Circuit and the Seventh Circuit, but times are different. And this case has a district court ruling that is extremely favorable to the players. So we'll see. Do schools have a legitimate argument to say that, like, if this happens, it's just going to be too cost prohibitive for everybody except a handful of athletic departments, you know, like the Alabamas or the, you know, fill, fill in your super, like, you know, supercharged school like Stanford that has billions of dollars in fun, in funding and stuff like that. It's like, is that a legit argument? I, I'm not sure. So I asked Paul McDonald, he's the lead counsel. And he said, well, think about it. Do the math. Let's say they get put, paid $25 an hour. If we yeah. use the NCAA's 20 hour per week limit of sports activities, then it's 500 bucks a week, 2000 a month over four to five months of a season. We're talking yeah. eight to 10,000, uh, offered by now some schools that actually is a lot of money so i wouldn't yes i don't yeah. want to down lower it. level division yep. one maybe yeah but i i find that one hard to believe that uh i don't know you know penn state or michigan like you know these are big athletic budgets here yeah and look what they're paying coaches right or the new facility or the the 13th right. uh trainer right so i i i i think that the money concern is much less persuasive at those major schools though i do concede at you leave the top 30, 40 schools, the economics change pretty, pretty dramatically. 
I agree with that. All right. Um, all right. Two more quick ones here. Um, the rise of college swimmer Leah Thomas, a transgender woman, ignited a uh, a firestorm over who should not who should be allowed to compete in women's sports. We've seen some good faith discussion. We've seen, man, a ton of bad faith discussion and culture war monetization over this. Um, when I looked, at least 12 states have enacted legislation banning transgender students from participating in sports teams at public high schools. Um, I wanted to ask you, like, how you see this litigation um, possibly uh, playing out. We're seeing bills advocated by people who oppose transgender kids playing sports with cisgender teammates many 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 times there's not a lot of actual transgender kids playing sports like the numbers are not very low in these particular states but and again this is my lay lay person thing is this something mike that ultimately will have to be um determined federally where there's a, a federal uh statute or like many of these other issues will this be a state-by-state thing and some states will approach it one way and then other states will approach it another way and generally speaking a lot of this falls along political or culture kind of uh lines yeah so for now i I think it's a state-by-state thing and then over the long run i expect there will be some sort of either federal interpretation president biden had issued an executive order earlier in his presidency which signaled, although more uh, really in aspirational language rather than, than than sort of actionable language, that there would not be discrimination on the basis of sexual identity in the locker room, I think was the word used, which obviously implies sports. But that hasn't led to sort of a formal change of law at a federal level. And even if there's a federal law passed on this, it could be challenged as going beyond the rights of states and and acting in a way that states should have sort of sovereignty over this particular question, uh, as states often do with, with matters of, of, uh, of health and sports. So, you know, th- this is not going to have a resolution anytime soon. And I suspect I mean, this could end up in the Supreme Court through some vehicle or, or another. Uh, and, and that would certainly be interesting to follow. Yeah. And that at least... Again, my sense is that given the makeup of the court um, would have an impact on how that might be rendered federally. Last one for me, and this is, again, this is a kind of a just a, a one for myself because I, I happen to like the sport. I covered it for many years at Sports Illustrated. So the NCAA Women's Basketball Tournament, Mike, which I think you are a fan of as well, um, if they ever were could get to market to um, – to try to get a rights fee for that sport either on a season-long basis or even let's just take the women's Final Four, they would get millions and millions of dollars for that property. In this case, at the moment, that is all rolled up by the NCAA along with all some of these other sports outside of college football and college basketball where ESPN has paid the NCAA a rights fee to sort of broadcast you know, women's basketball championships, track and field championships, you know, women's swimming, et cetera. Do the college athletes playing right now, would they have any legal recourse to try to get more money for like the rights of what they are doing from some media organization? And I get, and again, this is, you know, I've been using this line a hundred times, but cause I am a lay person, unlike you and my sister, the smart lawyers out there. Um, <laughs> Like other, like, do they have any recourse? I mean, could they, could they decline playing? Could they sit in the middle of the court and say like, 
you know, until a resolution happens, we're not going to play. Like, do the students have any, I don't know, actionable recourse here? Because in a sport like that, like millions of dollars have been left off the table because of a decision by the NCAA and in some ways a decision by a media outlet too. Yeah, so they could. They could sit out. There there could be – but this is the tough part. Do you get everyone to agree to do that? And I think that there, that's yeah. always been the challenge with that kind of step. There is a case, a federal case called House versus NCAA – which involves Sedona Prince, uh, the, the former... Oh, uh, I didn't know yep. that. And the, the basic take of that case is all these years where NIL wasn't allowed, those athletes should, should be able to get money from money they could have earned. But interestingly, in that case, it extends to TV rights. So the argument is that NIL is not just what we think of it normally, endorsement deals, sponsorships, but, but appearing on TV. And we, we know that pro athletes are compensated for appearing on TV through TV deals. Why is it that ESPN pays to broadcast NBA games? The players are getting about half of that through the collective bargaining agreement, basketball-related income. There's some value to it, clearly. So why wouldn't the players at the college level get it? Now, the argument is that, well, they're not the producers of the game, that how would the money be divided? There's no union. There's no trade. So so there's all these sort of, it's too complicated arguments, but... You know, I always say if, if the argument is it's too complicated, then you figure out a way of solving it. Yeah, uh, Mike, when I was back on Twitter, that that phenomenally you know fun place that I know you love so much, uh, I feel like the best thing I've ever tweeted in like the last couple of years is uh, I wrote, I think ESPN should broadcast the college football playoff national championship for the love of the game. Go commercial free, accept no ad dollars, no promoting Disney products, no executive takes a paycheck that week. On-air talent does it all for gratis. Do it for the love of the game. <laughs> and it, that was like one of the things that actually really got a lot of pickup. But I was proud of myself for that because I thought of nothing else that sort of exposed um, this has always been an economic enterprise for those who have made money. And it's been really interesting to see in the last couple of years that when the labor, the product, actually starting to get money, the arguments that we sort of have heard as to why the product itself should not make money. It's uh, yeah. You know, or the argument, well, you know, they're getting a scholarship. That's my favorite. Well, first of all, they're not always getting a scholarship. Often not a full scholarship and work study students get scholarships and still get paid work study. So, you know, the notion that these sort of like these kind of like, uh, you know, knee jerk defenses uh, don't always withstand scrutiny. Yeah. Well said. Mike, I could talk to you for hours. This is always fascinating to me. Um, let me give the your many titles here. Michael McCann is a legal analyst and senior sports legal reporter at Sportico. Check out that publication for sure. He's also a professor of law at the University of New Hampshire's Franklin Pierce School of Law, where he's the director of sports and and uh, I'm sorry, the director of the Sports and Entertainment Law Institute. Mike, uh, for many many years, he's really taught like some interesting classes at his university, including on Deflategate and just some other stuff. So at a, at a very minimum, like follow on social, follow him on social media, check out his work on Sportico. But if you're also into the, and I know a lot of people uh, from academia listen to this podcast, you should just check out what he's doing because you may actually be able to glean something or even steal something from the classes that he's been doing because he's, he's doing a lot of interesting stuff that, um, that I haven't seen in many other um, sports law classes. Mike, it's great to catch up with your continued success, and uh, thanks so much for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. You got it. Thanks for having me, Richard. It was a lot of fun.
All right, back in the studio, my thanks to Michael McCann for uh, popping on today. He was terrific. Uh, I also had a previous Sports Illustrated colleague as well this week, Emily Kaplan, who's doing great work on their NHL coverage. You'll see her during the Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN+. Head to the archives page. There should be some stuff you like. Haley Rosen, founder and CEO of Just Women's Sports, uh, did a couple of um, sports media roundtables with Chad Finn and Austin Karp. Lindsey Jones, uh, my colleague at The Athletic, was recently on this podcast. Tony Khan of All Elite Wrestling. Tom Verducci on Roger Angel and the Art of Baseball Writing. Uh, again, head to the archives. There should be some stuff that you will enjoy. Thanks to Patrick Antonetti for sure. Thanks to everybody at Cadence 13 for their support. And thank you for listening. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast.